0: There we go. Uh, good morning and a very warm welcome to my study. <clears throat> Today we continue our short series on the book of Hebrews and the theme of this whole study is the uh, that great thing of perseverance, which is such a strong theme in our faith and specifically in the book of Hebrews. My dictionary de- defines perseverance as continuing steadfastly or determinedly. Our reading thus far has brought us to chapter 11 and its well-known list of heroes of the faith. As we shall see over the course of this talk and the next one, each of these, our examples, has a choice to make. In different ways, their faith was tested, I think, in the choice between shrinking back to what is familiar or pressing on to what God is calling us to. So for today's reading, I'm going to begin at the end of chapter 10, where we find this guiding principle clearly stated. My title for this pair of talks is shrinking back or pressing on. Let's read together, beginning at Hebrews 10, verse 36. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out into a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had the chance to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If you have a Bible in front of you, just look, if you would, at the last four verses of chapter 10 and the first three of chapter 12. Each of these bookend passages before and after chapter 11 is, in essence, a strong exhortation to endurance or perseverance. So this is another of those examples of the the sandwich form of argument, which is so common in the Bible. The main message is first stated, then it's explained, in this case, through many examples, and then restated for emphasis. This whole passage then is a faith sandwich, and we're gonna be spending most of our time examining that filling. But as we do so, we need to remember that the bread, without which there'd be no sandwich at all, is all about endurance, or in other words, perseverance. So just a word of reminder then about our bottom slice of bread as we construct the sandwich, verses 36 to 39, before we butter it and fill it with chapter 11. As Jesse was saying last week, verse 36 encourages us to look beyond our current experience to a far greater reward to come. And if we're gonna get there, we can't afford to shrink back to what is safe and what is familiar. We have to press on into new places and new experiences And yes, we have to risk failure. Then verse 37 speaks of the return of the Lord, the judgment day, which Jeremy spoke so clearly and kindly about a fortnight ago. It is in that context then that verse 38 reminds us of our confidence through Jesus to enter the holiest place and approach the throne, the mercy seat of God himself. Our unworthiness often causes us to run from God's presence, but in fact, forgiveness can't be found anywhere else. As verse 39 warns, shrinking back from him is the very thing that endangers our salvation. So forgive me this brief recap of over ground we covered in the previous two talks, but I just don't think we can understand what chapter 11 says about faith if we divorce it from what goes before and after it. As always, context is king. Well, the first half of chapter 11, it seems to me, makes four important propositions about faith. Verses 1 to 3 faith is a lot more solid and substantial than we tend to suppose. Verses four to six, faith doesn't just help us, it actually pleases God. Verses seven to 12, faith gives our lives a lasting legacy. And verses 13 to 16, faith looks beyond this life to something much, much better. First proposition, faith is more solid and substantial than we suppose most bibles i've read uh, offer us rather a feeble translation i think of verse one by contrast the king james version is more robust it says faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen and those translators have a point because the greek word stasis means more than the ESV's mere assurance would tend to imply. Stasis means standing, having stability, literally the reality of things hoped for. To the person of faith, faith isn't just some wishy-washy add-on to ordinary life. It is the very ground on which we stand. The word conviction later in the verse in the ESV is not so bad, but the primary meaning of the Greek word is proof. So, verse one then becomes a much more striking and challenging declaration if we strip away all the nuance and allow the simple meaning full weight. Faith is the reality of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. The life of faith must be one that proves both to ourselves and to the world around us, that the unseen things we hope for are absolutely solid realities. And as John Wimber used to say, faith is spelt R-I-S-K. The story goes that Blondin, the great tightrope walker, after his first high wire crossing of the Niagara Falls, picked up a wheelbarrow, and brandishing it, he asked the adoring crowds, who believes I can walk back pushing this wheelbarrow? And everyone shouted, yes, we believe, we believe. Then Blondin pointed to the man who was shouting the loudest and said, right, get in. Faith is the proving of what we say we believe. It requires pressing on, not shrinking back. In fact, faith is so real, so solid, that verse three tells us the whole universe was created by faith. The word of God alone made intangible concepts and possibilities into the concrete world which scientists deal with. So faith is a lot more solid than we think. Second, faith doesn't just help us, it actually pleases God. Verse four begins our whistle stop tour of the Old Testament Hall of Fame, beginning in verse beginning with Cain and Abel. Cain, we read, sacrificed to God some of the fruit of the ground. But Abel actually displayed faith in his offering because he sacrificed some of his best breeding stock. It was this faith sacrificing a predictable future for the sake of present closeness to God made his offering pleasing to God. If we want to receive what God has in his hands, we have first to let go of what we have in our own. Enoch, verse five, is a tantalizing figure, mentioned only very briefly in Genesis, as someone who walked with God until one day he simply disappeared because God took him. Walking with God is what pleases him not some lonely, painful, and ultimately doomed struggle to be good. I was recently asked what the overall direction of my lifelong faith journey had been. And the answer that came unbidden to my lips was, it's been a journey away from the terrible theological certainties of youth and towards the life-giving certainties that God is absolutely real and that he loves me absolutely. At the time, it sounded pretty feeble to me, but if I wanted a proof text, there it is, in Hebrews 11, verse 6. That is the direction my walk with Jesus has taken me. One day, who knows, I might even dare believe that it's pleasing to my Heavenly Father. Proposition 3. Faith gives to our lives a lasting legacy. and I should drink some water if my voice is going to last. Noah verse seven had life-changing, in fact, life-saving faith. If he hadn't believed God's word, he wouldn't have built the ark, then all humanity would have perished from the face of the earth. We then are all part of Noah's legacy, products of his solid, practical, God-pleasing faith. And verse eight, Abraham gave up a comfortable living in Northern Syria to obey God's call to a nomadic life in the promised land. I was struck rereading Abraham's story this time by the fact that Abraham might not even have been God's first choice as the forefather of his chosen people. Because Abraham's father Terah, or Terah, left Ur in Babylonia to go into the land of Canaan. It tells us in Genesis eleven thirty one. But the fact was he never made it. Most likely the first leg of the journey followed the fertile Euphrates Valley northeast. But halfway to his destination, he came to a place called Haran and just stopped there. It was only when he died that God called Abraham to complete the journey. Perhaps having lived most of his life in a place called Ur, we can forgive Terah his hesitation. He stopped at a place that seemed good enough. Will we? Because good enough is not good enough for God. It's not the way of faith, as verse 10 clearly spells out for us. If we want a lasting legacy, we need to take the way of faith, not the way of convenience. As Albus Dumbledore so wisely put it, the time is coming. And we shall all have to choose between doing what is easy and doing what is right. Fourth and last proposition. Faith looks beyond the blessings and trials of this life to something far better. All these people, verse 13, died in faith without seeing the promise fulfilled. And we shouldn't be too surprised if we too die before the Lord's return. But unlike these people, we have seen in Jesus a decent glimpse, at least, of the promise beginning to be fulfilled. If we feel like strangers and exiles in these years of our wilderness wanderings, then we're in good company. These heroes of Hebrews 11 lived entirely in the not yet. We are privileged to live in the already and not yet of God's kingdom. But especially in times of trial, as I think this COVID has been for many of us, faith looks beyond the already of God's kingdom, rich as it is, and sets its eyes and heart on the horizon, the promised land of the not yet. Ancient Israel, as we read in Numbers 14, shrank back on the very verge of the promised land and died in the wilderness. Their children had to learn through 40 hard years the lessons of faith which eventually enabled them to possess it. So, will we press on? Because we too are seeking a homeland, verse 14. We don't need to establish a caliphate by brutality and violence. We don't need to carry a Jesus banner in our left hand and the Kalashnikov in our right. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, but they are mighty, to the mighty in God, to the pulling down of strongholds. For the early Jewish believers reading or hearing these words for the first time, this was their constant shame that their forefathers, faced with a little bit of opposition, had started wishing they were back in Egypt instead of pressing on into the promised land. That is the painful subtext of verse 15, and it ought to challenge us as well. Now, those of you who are fans of Deep Purple, as I'm sure most of you are, will know that they released a new single this year. And it happened to come up in a random playlist during one of my my own small endurance training sessions about eight kilometres into the 10 on my rowing machine. I was thinking about this talk and trying to go the distance and I slightly misheard the words of the chorus. It's one of the fun things about getting older. You can mishear things in joyful ways. It seemed like a perfect illustration of people who shrink back rather than pressing on. The apologies to Deep Purple and its fans. Uh, this is what I heard. All I've got is what I need and that's enough far as I can see. Why should I walk into the great unknown when I can sit here enthroned on bones? In fact, I think there are a couple of answers we could give to this rhetorical question. The more bloody minded one is simply because God says so. And if that's where your walk with Jesus has brought you so far, then I I commend it to you because it's certainly enough. But I think there's a more kind and encouraging reason why I should walk into the great unknown rather than sitting here enthroned on bones. And I think that's the answer this passage in Hebrews leans towards. It is because the reward for pressing on into the great unknown is so fabulously worthwhile. So we can choose to leave this walk of faith to the heroes. We can rely on our own wisdom and wealth. We can get to a place that seems good enough and stop there. And we can keep our sights firmly on the bird in the hand, the good thing that we already know. Or we can stand on our faith. We can walk in it and please God. We can accrue a lasting legacy. And we can cast our vision far beyond the blessings and buffetings of this life. We can anchor the very life we live now on the rich and rewarding future that awaits us in the promised homeland of God's soon coming kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, would you strengthen our faith so that we may press on in our walk of faith with you proving to ourselves and to the world around us how real and reliable are the unseen things we believe about you. Amen.